Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cupper. And today on Review the Future, we're asking the question, what happens in a world of perfectly fakeable audio and video? So this is something that appears to be on the horizon. It's getting easier and cheaper to create fake video footage, fake audio footage, and the potential exists for a world where it's incredibly cheap for pretty much anyone to fake anything that they would want to fake and make somebody say something they didn't say or make some events appear to have happened that didn't actually happen. And so today we wanted to talk about if that's a future we're heading for, what does that look like and what would be the impacts? Now, in, in some senses, it's always been possible to fake this stuff. Uh, in fact, today, you know, if you have an incredibly large CGI budget and paid actors and a lot of money and time, uh, arguably you can make a pretty convincing hoax of anything. Uh, so I think that the difference between you know, that state of things and the future state of things that we want to think about is when that becomes really cheap and available to everybody. Well, not just cheap, but also available in real time, right? Because I think, uh, of course, it's been possible to fake uh, audio and video in, you know, high-end films for a long time, as you say, but that's a, a non-real-time process, right? Artists sit there and paint things frame by frame, or they use, you know, high-end uh, computer software for days and days in order to make a single shot. Uh, if you're talking about, you know, Forrest Gump or, or whatever uh, iconic film you can think of where, you know, reality is faked. But with some of the things that we've seen demos of recently, not only are these uh, commodity software products that can, you know, run on your, your desktop computer, but they run instantly in real time. Sure. So you could imagine a situation where you get a phone call and it sounds like your friend. It sounds exactly like your friend mm -hmm. talking to you in real time. Uh, but really, it's being generated by software on the fly. So when you ask a question uh, of your supposed friend, in this case, you get a on the fly answer that's completely fake. So that's the potential of a, of a real-time technology, right? Right, uh, right. As opposed to like a pre-recorded message from the president or something, which uh, we've heard before. Those kinds of things could be faked before, but they quickly give themselves up as fake because you say, hey, wait a minute, and then the, the recording doesn't stop. <laughs> although I think um, maybe there's like two sort of points in the horizon then that we could imagine right because i think first we would get to a point where non real time but just really good faked stuff uh would be doable by say you know one person you know in a day so if in other yeah, words, if I, mean, I, I think we're actually there i think that's our current world right i mean if i have nuke and i know how to use it then i can fake something pretty well well, so let's talk about like, are we discussing, are you talking about audio, for example? Like, well, let's start with that. Sure, that's a let's, bit talk about audio. let's talk about audio, right. I mean, uh, there's a lot of signal processing that's already available uh, cheaply or free that you can use to fake all manner of audio effects and styles. Yeah, I think with audio, it's, it's a lot easier. Um, 
you know, I've heard obviously edits and, and chopped up things of people saying things they didn't say. I usually, I haven't heard one that was totally convincing to me a hundred percent. Although sure you have, you just didn't know. Right? Well, that's very possible. <laughs> if you ever watch uh, reality television, then you've heard people say all kinds of things that they didn't say. Uh, that stuff is Frankenbit to within an inch of its life, right? That's There's an industry term in reality for chopping up people word by word or even vowel by vowel and making them say what you want, which is freaking biting, right? That's the industry term. And uh, it's used so commonly that um, it's a skill set that people have. Um, yeah, that's true. Actually, I had forgotten about that. Uh, is there an easy place to hear a demo of that online though i mean because obviously you know without i don't work in the reality tv field we know many people who do uh, being in los angeles but I, I would like to hear like a demonstrate like a before and after <laughs> demonstration of of what people can do with that you know i think it's one of those things that for the most part they try to hide it but uh i i'm not sure whether there's a good example of that but i've definitely heard it in action and um, the kinds of things that they can do now um, in non-real-time audio editing include uh, changing the pitch of individual syllables and time-stretching uh, individual syllables independent of pitch. And so you can do things like make people ask a question when they didn't initially or, you know, chop up a sentence word by word and literally make them say the opposite of what they said. They can say, I'm here to make friends and you can make them say, I'm not here to make friends, right? You can, um, you can do quite a lot. Uh, and they do, um, to just, uh, completely subvert the intention of the actor. What I don't think commodity signal processing does terribly well right now. I mean, it lets you can do formant changes and things like that, which will, will, will change like the apparent gender or race of the voice, but they don't, seem to have the kind of mapping necessary to, for example, transform something that I spoke in my own natural voice into something that, you know, sounds exactly like Barack Obama said it or something like that. That level of signal processing, while possible, is is outside the realm of the, the sort of democratized tool set that everybody has access to. Well, also, if if I wanted to, say, write a, you know, 20-minute speech, you know, for someone to say, I think that would be a tr tremendous amount of work for one person to do um, with today's technology still, right? And I mean, I think probably what I would imagine, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is a lot of the editing that happens in reality television is just tweaking of things. You have a lot of source. You can turn a statement into a question. You can remove a word. You can completely change the context. You can splice multiple sentences together. Uh, but if I just need someone saying, you know, a sentence that I write, I, I don't know if you can just generate that convincingly or, or do you, or is your impression that that is possible? Yeah, you can, it is work intensive. So I think they limit themselves to doing that only when absolutely necessary. But let's say I had, you know, interviewed you, uh, about, you know, how you feel about the other contestants on some game show that you're on. I could turn what you said into the Gettysburg address with the kinds of stuff that we have now. I mean, it might take hours and it may not be worth it for the uh, company to pay their audio person to do that. But th that technology is available at this point. Um, okay. And, and has been, I think for a little while in the professional world. Um, and those tools, you know, they start expensive and they trickle down to everybody. But 
there is, I think, some significant difference between that and some of these demos that we've seen recently, which which seem to go go far beyond what I'm used to in the in the audio post world. Sure. So why don't we why don't we stay on audio for a second? Sure. Right. Uh, so there's a uh, a pretty cool tech demo that you can see online that's been making the rounds uh, for a company called Liarbird. Right. 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 This is the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, liar spelled L-Y-R-E, although it's pretty funny that it uh, sounds like the other liar. Ah, yeah, I didn't even catch that when I looked at it. Yeah, I don't know if that's intentional on their part, but (laughs) you can certainly make uh, lying statements with this. But it claims to uh, be able to take a one-minute audio clip of anyone talking and uh, then, you know, deduce from that, that person's unique speech signature. I forget the term that they use, but sort of like the key for like how that person talks, the, the form and shapes and so on. And then once they've deduced that sort of person's speech pattern from a minute of audio, then you can do what I was sort of describing might be possible where you could type in any sentence you want. And without any additional work, it can essentially make that person or what sounds like that person say that sentence. Yeah. What's so cool about Liarbird is it's a synthesizer, not an editing tool. So you don't need very much source at all. It, it trains the synthesizer on the minute of source that you give it uh, in order to create um, a patch that will then, using regular text-to-speech uh, technology, be able to say anything you type more or less believably. And we listen to these and they have trained them on famous voices uh, uh, such as uh, Obama and um, Trump and some other famous voices. And they're pretty convincing. I mean, I don't know if they're 100% convincing right now, but they are, I'd say, on the level of like a good human impersonator. Yeah, I would say they're not... um I don't think they're actually convincing at all in the sense that I wouldn't be inclined to believe they were real um, unless you had some excuse for why it was like a very garbled, you know, line that was being tapped or something Uh, because they do sound a little bit garbled, but they are very recognizable as that person. Right. And certainly, yeah, if you wanted to make, say, a, you know, funny video or a cartoon of, uh, you know, Obama or Trump doing something silly, you could use this in lieu of a good impersonator. And I think like it would play pretty well, actually. Um, So it's about that good. It's like, it's good enough to call that person to mind and create those associations strongly. It's not, I don't think it would fool anyone, but it's also, it's a tech demo. I mean, it's a really impressive sign of things to come. I mean, you got to assume it's going to improve. Right. And for for me anyway, the way that it fell short was not so much in the uh, impersonation as in the, uh, just general roboticness of the text-to-speech. Mm-hmm. So it, it failed in sort of the same way that Siri or Alexa fails to me uh, mm-hmm. to be 100% human. It did still sound a bit like a robot. Yeah. There's some artifacts in, or something in it that you can hear. Um, it does randomize the intonation. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the parts of the demos on the website, and we'll link to this, of course, so our audience can check it out, is that... Uh, you know, you can, it won't say the same thing the same way twice, right? So it has some sort of algorithm that uh, introduces some intonation variation so that, so that it is a lot more human than, than many speech synthesizers are. Yeah, and you can imagine over a low quality connection such as a phone, you might actually get tricked a bit by that. Because if you were to say 
get a telemarketing call from Robo Trump, uh, and you're like, "Hey, are you a robot?" You know, just something I sometimes say when I'm not mm-hmm. sure if I'm talking to a robot just yet. Uh, it might say, "You know, no, I'm not a robot." In a in, in a believable uh, Trump voice, and you might say, "You sure you're not a robot?" And it might say, "No, I'm not a robot." In a different way, and then that might you know that might help to to convince you. Um, it seems like that technology is going to get better too, because the things that are wrong with it are things that have been sort of getting better in general in uh, text-to-speech over the years. And mm-hmm. so I, I would imagine that they're riding some sort of machine learning curve that they're going to you know, continue to improve. So shall we talk about the state of video for a second? Yeah, um, sure. Okay, so uh, again, uh, it's possible to fake things to a tremendous degree today with a lot of time and I think more time and more money than it would take on the audio side. Certainly more processing power. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, we have plenty of examples of big budget movies that uh, do a lot of CGI processing and create very, very believable fake stuff. It's just that that's not really, again, the, the amount of resources you have to expend to pull that off would make like a casual hoax, uh, not only just maybe probably not worth pulling off, but also the sheer amount of energy you'd have to put into creating a convincing fake, I feel like would also leave a trail, right? Because you'd probably have to hire a bunch of skilled experts. Well, it is possible if you know what you're doing to uh, to do this stuff on your own. Like there have been a few really well-known uh, fan films that have come out mm-hmm. in the last few years that have basically had you know, uh, blockbuster quality effects. So Gareth Edwards, the director uh, who went uh, went on to direct uh, Rogue One, the most recent uh, Star Wars um, world movie, he started his career with a film that he did all the effects himself on. And I think it took him, you know, years, but he didn't have money uh, and he had skills. So he spent that time and, and was able to produce, you know, believably fake effects uh, for a movie. But again, what I think is like, really shocking and amazing about the where the art's going is this idea of being able to do this stuff very quickly either it, literally in real time or with you know minimal tweaking and rendering uh because it used to be that you would have to very carefully plan this stuff and then wait overnight or longer for it to render you know and then you can check it out and see if there's problems make tweaks rinse and repeat over and over again. It was a very time-consuming, labor-intensive process. Right, right. And so, you know, moving more to the the potential state of the art with this stuff, uh, back to the world of tech demos here. Yeah, fun, um, fun new tech demos, our favorite. Yeah, there's, there's a fun uh, tech demo that you can see online for something called Face to Face. <clears throat> That's with the number two, Face to Face, like it's a yeah, well, Prince song. <laughs> exactly. And we'll, we'll put a, a link to that as well. But uh, so this is a real time way to fake facial expressions and speech in particular. So you have you need two video streams, right? You have a uh, source video, which could say be Ted or I just, you know, sitting in a studio talking and saying the things that we want to uh, make Obama say. Right. And then we also have. Right. So that's the thing that you're taking the facial expressions from, essentially. Right. So that would analyze, you know, a video of me talking, uh, deduce my facial structure, uh, create a, a model of my face, essentially, and, and track over time the position of my the corners of my mouth and like the different facial muscles. And then this technology can then apply that face map to say an existing video of 
Obama giving an interview. Right. And they have like a target face from like a video stream or I think yes. it can even be a, a pretty short loop. And then they're able to map the facial expressions that you're showing onto the face that you have designated as your target. Right. And so then it looks like Obama is saying whatever it is that I'm trying to make him say. Yeah. And what's so amazing about this tech demo is that it is real time so that you can sit there and watch a monitor and watch your Obama puppet, your photo reel, you know, CNN news stream Obama puppet or whatever, literally make the facial expressions and say the words that you're saying. It's like real-time one-to-one puppetry where, you know, your face controls their face. Um, and that's, from a performance point of view, like really, really interesting. Like if you are an actor or impressionist, what an amazing tool for you to do a more engaging performance. Well, for one thing, this feels like made to be married with the previous technology that we were talking about, <laughs> uh, where you can also generate these people's voices, right, to go along with the correct facial expressions. But of course, uh, just with the state of the, the face-to-face technology today and the demos that you can see online, if you just imagine a good impressionist having access to that, I feel like they could make some very, very funny stuff. Yeah, that's actually interesting. I was just thinking, um, as you said that, it would be hard to marry those technologies literally, but it seems like you want like a third technology that would transform your voice in real time into an impression of the other person rather than a voice synthesizer like the uh, Lyrebird technology. Right. Well, then it would be a, then it would be a, uh, a one-step process rather than a two-step process. Right. Like otherwise you'd have to, you know, first uh, like get the video and then get the audio and then, and then cut those together. I would think um, you'd have to get the audio and then you'd have to perform your video to the audio in order. Sure. To, I think if you were to use those particular technologies, I think that's the way that would have to work. But I could imagine you could have signal processing that uh, basically has the same technique as the Lyrebird thing, but instead of being a synthesizer, it just takes live input and changes the intonation, changes the formance, uh, maybe even mixes up the speeds and things like that to really make it match. Yeah, you could have like basically a one-click button in the near future maybe that is a, you know, impression button. Yeah, and speaking of the one-click button, I mean, let's now get to the the point we're imagining, right? Which is fast forward however many years you think this takes and this becomes not a super labor-intensive thing, not something that requires a ton of expertise, but something where literally anyone can just, you know, in, concoct a fake um, Donald Trump speech and distribute it on the internet. Uh, right, with, you know, with no more difficulty as making a, uh, you know, a cat-eared um, Instagram video or something, right? Like Exactly. It becomes <clears throat> like one of these democratized AR toys that we have now kind of a lot of uh where anyone can you know hold their phone up to their face and talk into it and the output is a fake donald trump video or or whatever yeah democratized access to fakery basically is what we're talking about yeah that's Um, like the big change right 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 yeah so what we want to talk about now is like what does that mean right for society what are the what are the impacts or i mean i think a lot of people's first uh, instinct would be to can be alarmed, right? It sounds uh, somewhat disturbing. Well, there are at least some alarming elements of this, right? I, I think it's important to point out that 
faking things that aren't audio and video has also been possible for a long time, right? So like, there's mm-hmm. plenty of fake. Uh, perhaps you've heard of fake news, right? <laughs> this is a yes. thing. Um, you know, there's plenty of fake text in the world. Uh, fake news is maybe just one small sliver of the fake text that is out there because uh, text inherently, since it's a symbolic system, is pretty easy to fake. Um, if I wanted to write something and sign your name to it, I could probably pretty easily impersonate you in text, much more easily than with audio or video. Yeah, like a good uh, writer or could can just pretty much gather someone's uh, style by reading their work and uh, imitate it pretty thoroughly uh, and convincingly, right? And that's been possible for as long as writing has existed. Exactly. Um, and it has caused problems before, right? I mean, people have received a letter that was fake and and made political decisions and romantic decisions and other big decisions based on that. So it is something that, you know, there's stories about it going back years, uh, uh, Cyrano or, you know, there's a million of them. Um, uh, and to some extent, this is just that. This is just the, the general problem of fakery um, creeping up into another part of our life. But I do feel that people are inherently more skeptical of text than they are of, of for example, video, which uh, has not been yes. easily fakeable in our in our lives. Well, what's interesting about text is pretty much as soon as we had the technology of writing, mm-hmm. we had the technology of faking writing. <laughs> like those things <laughs> arrived together. So, right. you know, immediately you were trained on the fact that that would be a possibility. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, when you get to a, a, a more complex medium, I think pho- photography is an interesting one maybe to talk about next. Okay. When you have the onset of photography, it's you don't have it's not the same as when you have writing and like it can also be faked. It's like for a while we have photography and now I think you can certainly fake almost any type of photograph. But in the early days of photography, it would have been not not a trivial process to fake a photograph. I suppose you could paint something. I guess I guess in the early days of photography, when when photographs were somewhat uh, poor quality, maybe maybe a good painter could make a pretty good imitation, right? But it's difficult enough that I think, you know, in the early days of photography, you could feel like what you, like photographic evidence actually meant something, right? Like right, that this right. Is, carries some weight as like, you know, maybe possibly forged, but highly unlikely to be forged. And so people are very likely to believe what they see a photograph of. Right, right. Like in court evidence, for example, photographs were, you know, very commonly accepted as evidence um, up until, you know, when Photoshop became (laughs) a commonly obtained program. And uh, then I think people's skepticism had to grow about photographs that they see. And now there's a whole sort of subfield of forensic photography where people have an expertise in looking closely at pictures to see if they've been faked, to try to determine if Photoshop has been used to alter the, the photo, which there's still some evidence of um, if you look closely enough. But if you are just looking at it from the normal vantage point that you would look at a photo, uh, it's often very difficult to determine a digitally edited photo from one that's just digitally stored. Whereas, you know, something that's video today um, doesn't really suffer from the same problem if you have security camera footage or something, you know, because that still has a pretty high bar for being faked. We're still likely to accept that as true. Right. right. Um, The way we think of faking video now is like staging a video, not 
taking a existing video stream and digitally altering it to right. your specs. So, you know, you might be skeptical if the entire thing appears stageable, but you're not going to be skeptical just of the image itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, society's skepticism changes in response to what they know is technologically possible. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, to some extent, there's even an analogy to things like like advertising, which we've talked about. Right. I think people have had increased uh, skepticism towards like certain types of marketing. Of course, that's always like a moving target. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this society evolves. And I think that's one of the first things that we're going to have to expect will happen. Right. Like once it's possible to completely fake video and audio, people's skepticism is going to go through the roof. Now, there might be a delay there, I think. Um, and that's somewhat concerning. Right. Because the general public's not always completely aware of what's technologically possible the day it becomes possible. But I've got to assume that's going to filter out pretty quickly. Right. Right. Um, right. Well, and interestingly, if you go to the ethics page of uh, the Liarbird website, they talk about their explicit goal as being um, sort of promoting awareness via their technology, right? They want to make it freely available and publicize it and be super open about it so that, you know, maybe everybody realizes this exists rather than this being, say, you know, developed privately by someone who's going to try to misuse it immediately. Yeah, um, I found their ethics statement kind of funny because uh, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't identify any real responsibilities they felt they had, but it did say that they hoped that their technology and their promotion of it would convince courts around the world to just take audio, audio evidence far less seriously because it's a it's a proof of concept that audio evidence can be can be faked. Um, yeah, uh, which is, I think, a uh, <laughs> is it, it, not everybody would feel that that was adequately addressing their ethical requirements. Um, <laughs> but I thought it was a very funny and sort of engineering type approach. Yeah, it's sort of like saying, uh, you know, this is going to happen anyways, yeah. so we, we'd better do it free and you know open, right? Yeah, and like our mo- our main important point is. If we can do this, other people can do this. So you better assume people are doing it, basically, which is, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sympathetic to that point of view. I think that's uh, the right way to handle a new transformative technology is to embrace it and to try to accept as quickly as possible that it's going to get out in the world and its implications are, you know, need to be dealt with. Yeah. yeah. So and I, and I think that will get out like, I mean, barring some weird transition moment where people get blindsided by something they didn't know was possible. I mean, that could maybe happen once, you know, uh, but I think like by and large, we're expecting a future where skepticism goes up. And it's interesting to wonder about whether that hits anything like a healthy balance. Right. Because if, you know, it's possible to have you know, too much skepticism to the point that you have, you know, total distrust of everything. And I think that is, you know, part of the conversation today, uh, now around fake news sort of revolves around that potential danger where, um, on the one hand you want to be skeptical, but on the other hand, if you have, you know, total skepticism to where you don't do any work to follow up and attempt to at least parse out what's true and isn't true, um, then it's possible to kind of give up, right? and throw up your hands and write off everything. And that, uh, I don't know if that's a problem, that that doesn't, certainly doesn't sound good, right? It sounds like you want 
you know, a public that's somewhere in the middle, right? That's literate about what's possible and has some tools for trying to discern which things might be real or might not be uh, without completely just writing off everything they see. Yeah, well, the danger there is that people just believe what they want to believe. It's not that they assume everything's fake, which I think is possibly, I mean, a little hopeless, but could be potentially a useful pose. But it's that they assume everything's fake they don't agree with. Uh, because this, it's, this combines with everybody's existing sort of my side biases and uh, confirmation bias. And so, mm-hmm. you, you know, then you're, that's the real danger to me is that you believe the fake stuff that confirms your point of view, but you don't believe the fake stuff that challenges it. That could lead to people's ideas just getting more and more calcified and polarized. Um, not sure that that's the way it goes necessarily. And I think a healthy skepticism of, where our messages are coming from and who is sending them to us is uh, a good thing, not a bad thing. But, you know, it can go too far. It can get to the point where you won't listen to anything that that challenges your worldview, basically. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up biases because I think that um, I think the first reaction to this is, oh, my gosh, this is going to be, you know, like we think it's bad now. This is going to be like a horrible situation in the future. We just can't tell what's true and what isn't. but I think actually the impact of those inherent biases might be a lot stronger than any particular technology anyways. Um, so I feel like even with today's technology, people's biases allow them to believe stuff, I think, you know, in a somewhat irrational way um, or, or in a way that plays into whatever their, their slant is. And like that problem already exists and that problem's not necessarily going away. And just having better technology, you know, may not actually move the needle as much when you have that, you know, that human bias at the the foundation sort of dictating what people do and don't believe. Yeah, yeah. I could only see it making it worse in the sense that it plays into that very bias. But I don't think it's, yeah, I mean, we're already dealing with that now, as I think is pretty clearly seen where people just ignore you know, all, all kinds of evidence that, that doesn't confirm what they already believe. Um, another thing that might happen if this gets to be widespread and well-known, though, is, you know, when we talked about various things that retain value uh, in the future as, um, as things get ephemeralized, one thing we talk about is authenticity, right? The true nature or true origin of artifacts and things. And if stuff can be reliably synthesized, like, I mean, let's blow this a little bit further into the future. If I can type a few commands into a computer and it can generate for me um, a Wes Anderson movie or something, then we might see uh, that authenticity being devalued in the future by, by technology like this. Right. So an, an easy analogy from the past is probably just, you know, forged uh, paintings, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, like a, a painting gets its value from authenticity. And I think we, we first discussed this many, many, many episodes ago early on. Uh, we did a podcast on, you know, things that remain scarce in the future. Um, and one of them is supposed to be authenticity. At least I think we had that on our list um, because even in a world where you can perfectly forge things, there still technically is an original. But of course, if you can't spot the original, like if it's actually not even possible to distinguish. And I think this is like a sort of a part, a moment where our thought experiment forks a little bit, right? Because 
we're assuming um, that you can fake audio and video, but there's a question about like how much with research can you um, maybe uncover ultimately, you know, whether or not it's uh, fake or not, right? Because right, right, right. There's a difference between uh, a fakery that convinces you on first watch yeah. and a fakery that uh, fools forensics. Right. Because one thing that has been happening, um, like I mentioned with the Photoshop thing, is that forensics has actually been getting better um, riding the same wave of information technology that fakery is riding. So people are able to use computer analysis now to, you know, look at the pixels of a photoshopped uh, JPEG and determine, oh, this edge here, you know, comes from an edit, Uh, this tiny amount of you know, wrong colored pixels here that the human eye couldn't ever pick out um, indicates where an edit was made. Uh, right. And so at the same time as we're getting an easier uh, fakery that convinces humans, we're, it's actually getting harder and harder to convince computers uh, of the truth of these things. So it may be that this is just like an arms race where forensics wins and uh, authenticity is still... Um, Determinable, And, uh, you know, in the case of things like evidence in court, uh, you can run a program that will tell you if this is a real audio file or not. And that does change the social implications, because then you're just talking about fooling people who want to be pooled, basically fooling people who are, you know, um, are fake news consumer type people, people who are, you, you know, their biases are pushing them in one direction and then uh, it's easier to sort of lie to your own followers with this technology. But if somebody is truly skeptical and really wants to check it out, they can go to isthisfake.com or whatever and run the program and it can tell them, you know, oh yeah, that's fake. It's created by this program that came out six months ago or whatever, right? Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a different world. I, I don't know which of those worlds we end up in. I guess it's it's a fair it's a fair guess, I think. It could be either way. Yeah, and I think it's the same for the art example too, right, in terms of the value of authenticity that you brought up, which is that if we're in the world where some kind of forensics actually works, then you have the same kinds of people that do that today that can verify that a work of art is, in fact, the original, uh, done by the original creator. Um, and so that would retain its value because, you know, if it's, you know, probably there would be places on the web that you could confirm uh, the authenticity of something. Right. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think a world where like there are workable forensics is actually really not very different from today. I think we can almost like kind of just box that outcome and say that maybe even though it feels really different that all, all of a sudden the internet is full of all these like incredible fakes, um, if you can, again, always go to isthisfake.com or whatever that, <laughs> right. the future version of that is, right. um, it's still just a world where people who try to find the truth in most cases uh, can get a pretty good idea. And it's good to have that kind of healthy skeptical stance, you know, that's sort of in the middle where you distrust at a first glance, but then do some research if you're if you need to find out. Um, but you know, many, many people don't bother. Right. And so you have a, a large crowds of people that can be manipulated, um, because it's just a little too much work to type, is this fake (laughs) into your web browser? Um, so, and, and then that, you know, I think raises a bunch of interesting questions, um, that we already are faced with today, which is that, you know, maybe sort of the platform forums where people, uh, consume, uh, fake media need to take some responsibility and make, you know, getting that is this fake.com information more frictionless and easier. Right. 
Um, I mean, that seems like the potential solution in today's world and the potential solution in, in a world that we're talking about that's just a little bit more extreme in this direction is, you know, if the platforms that people are using, let's say it's Facebook or Google or whatever it is, um, editorialize a little bit um, and or, you know, you know, privilege stuff that has some sort of uh, expertise uh, or third party confirming it is true or at least like, you know, noticeably flag the stuff that's untrue, uh, then maybe that helps solve the problem for people that otherwise wouldn't put the effort in. But then you have a bunch of problems there too, which is that now you have these platforms with a tremendous amount of power essentially saying what is and isn't true. Although that's, I mean, arguably they already have that power. Yeah, this I'd would just be more- that's just today, yeah. Yeah, this would just be maybe a more responsible way for them to wield their power if they if they wanted to. So I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that offhand? No, I mean, that sounds right to me. I feel like, um, you know, if there are centralized platforms, then they are in a unique position to just, you know, run forensic analysis on everything that goes through and give it a little truth score or something like that. You know, I think people who want to be deceived are going to be deceived just like we have now. But there is some middle ground, too, where if it's not for evidence in court or uh, some other official purpose, if you're not trying to get a passport or, you know, that sort of thing, then there'll be, there's just generally going to be less scrutiny put on things. And so I think you'll have the easiest time faking something uh, on social media or on other sort of many to many small scale distribution strategies, because there it's going to be kind of in no one's interest to bother checking. Um, right, right. It, it becomes a low priority in many, many just like casual news consuming situations. Um, yeah, there or, are like, or, or even yeah. just like um, personal situations like, you know, um, on a dating site. Like, <laughs> you know, um, imagine that I wanted to make a dating profile and I just wanted all of my videos and pictures to look more attractive. I could run this software, I suppose, and it could synthesize a version of me that's uh, taller and thinner and has a stronger jawline or whatever it is that, you know, I think would matter. I feel like there's a lot of just sort of casual uses of, like if I imagine this being uh, uh, available in an app, like the way that uh, Snapchat uh, bunny ears are, then um, I, I just feel like there's a lot of casual fakery that could just be kind of happening all the time that maybe isn't like societally dangerous in the way that faking a uh, an announcement of nuclear war by the president would be and then somehow getting that on te television, <laughs> right? Um, right. Uh, I, I could understand, you know, obviously that's more existentially dangerous, but I also feel like that will be subjected to much more scrutiny than um, just the advertisement I make for my local business or, you know, the personal ad I put for dates or the... Um, post that I put up for my friends to see on Facebook. So the kind of casual denigration of the truth <laughs> that could potentially take place uh, with this technology is uh, a little bit concerning to me and um, possibly uh, possibly culture corrects for this. Possibly people, you know, call you a poser if you are the equivalent future word if, if you do that sort of thing. And so social norms, you know, clamp down on it. But if they don't, then, you know, you could imagine a world where just a lot more of the information you're getting uh, about the world around you is not 
exactly true. Well, a lot more of the information that you'd get online would be, uh, I mean, it already, I think, has, and you've discussed this before, this sort of performative curated quality to it, right? Um, Because it's all, things get somewhat abstracted when they go online and they become bits that you can manipulate. And I mean, already people kind of pose with the type of text they put up and the type of photos they just select, right? Sure, and, and editing I think this, and yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think this intensifies, you know, people's uh, ability to sort of shape their their persona in all situations. Um, I think, you know, it doesn't eliminate, uh, you know, in-person type situations. Um, at least like part of our thought experiment, I think is that we're mostly assuming this is something that is happening in audio and video. I mean, it's a different world, I suppose, if you can actually, you know, fake a mannequin of yourself in, in the real world. Um, so let's set that crazy thought aside. Well, yeah. Well, that seems possible. It seems like it would require the permission of the person being fooled. Yeah. Uh, because I think like AR glasses or, you know, uh, cinematic reality glasses or whatever that come out in the future, might be able to, you know, overlay a, a real-time generated Barack Obama on top of me or something. But I don't think they could do that without you, the the viewer, allowing it. Um, yeah, I think that seems to me like you would require the permission of the of the person being fooled. Which at that point, it's a consensual, you know, make-believe activity. It's more like putting on a show for someone. It's not. Not, I'm not worried about the truth at that point. It could be a hack, I suppose. But, you know, that just, I mean, if there's a big security flaw or something, I mean, maybe maybe it could be pulled off that way too. But I, I, that, that's, I think, I don't want to get too much into that because I think that's an even more extreme version that's interesting. Right, but, right, right. But uh, I think, uh, yeah, like, for example, in your dating example, eventually, if you're going to go on a date, <laughs> they're going to meet you in person. So, I mean, just like that strategy doesn't work necessarily that great today where you can just put up uh, your best photos, um, you know, putting up truly faked photos may not work. Now, I think in situations where there never will be an in-person interaction, like, uh, you know, perhaps like with a celebrity um, that you're engaging with, um, like you could fake a whole celebrity, right? Like, or like if you never met that person uh, in the physical world, um, and every encounter you had with them was this modified version of them that was taller and better looking and so on. Um, you would never have any reason to to know, to ever find out uh, that, that what you had seen all along wasn't the real person. Right. Uh, although I don't know, again, the stakes are low in these situations, right? And I think, you know, if we're just talking about an entertainer or something, you know, maybe that's... Maybe that's okay, right? Well, I don't uh, think it's a problem, but I think it could be interesting for the entertainer uh, because they could choose to maintain their anonymity uh, when not performing mm-hmm. by, by embodying some faked um, persona. Uh, so, it, you know, let's say this is like a YouTube influencer type personality, somebody who does mm-hmm. YouTube videos. And they've got a technology that's something like a super version of those two demos we discussed. So they can speak and uh, move in, uh, in real time. Uh, a puppet will be g- generated that, you know, looks different from them in some way and sounds different from them in some way. 
they could uh, generate their videos like that. And then when they go out to uh, the grocery store to buy groceries, they don't have to worry about, you know, crazy fans um, wanting to take pictures with them because nobody would know what they really look like. They would just know what the persona looks like. Um, And that's actually potentially valuable to somebody who wants um, some of the positive trappings of celebrity without the negative parts. Yeah. Well, and there's, there is a, uh, this is another distinction that's coming up too, right? Which is the difference between say spoofing a real person, uh, and just creating a new person whole cloth. Right. Um, right, right. Or editing yourself or someone else to, to look different. Right. Right. Which I, yeah, which is sort of like a, a, essentially a new person. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think the, the ethical implications seem stronger for when you're actually spoofing somebody um, and, and essentially stealing their their persona and making them do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Oh, God. Uh, Can, are people going to have intellectual property? I guess people already have likeness rights, right? So that already is an intellectual property protection for people's likenesses. Like if I do a George Clooney puppet and I become, you know, George Clooney's YouTube channel about futurism... <laughs> <laughs> right? Can George Clooney sue, sue me? Like, I, I, <laughs> I assume that I'm really pretending to be him. You know, I'm not saying I just look like George Clooney. I'm I'm saying like, hi, I'm George Clooney, and and welcome to review the future or whatever. And uh, <laughs> it looks like him. It sounds like him. Um, then he's got a case against me, right? I'm pretty sure he can uh, take yeah. me, take me to court for that. I think. Uh, uh, I'm no, not obviously a legal expert at all, but my understanding is that, you know, with current laws, if you're actually attempting to convince people that you are, in fact, George Clooney and it's not a parody or something, I think that you could be taken to court over something like that. Um, and actually, the, something similar to this question was brought up by one of our listeners. I put a brief question on, on Twitter about this topic to see what who would answer. Uh, so someone named Joe Levy uh wanted us to talk about the idea that, you know, labels could release music on a musician's behalf. And of course that'd be very similar to uh, a production company releasing a movie on an actor's behalf uh, or, you know, any time you take someone's likeness, whether it's their audio likeness or their, their visual likeness and, you know, produce something with it. Um, I mean, the, the example you were talking about is very funny. It sounds like sort of like a rogue person just like sets up a, yeah. a fake, uh, fake Clooney, uh, channel. But I think, you know, you could also think of, uh, and, and this is the plot of a, a movie, the Congress, right? Where an actress, um, signs over her rights, signs over her likeness rights to a company, which then can make endless movies starring her. Uh, without her permission or control or without her even being needed to be there. Um, and I think that's, that's definitely an interesting place. Right. And um, I think we're, we're approaching that already with, um, with modern filmmaking technology, right? I think, um, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, I think, uh, Carrie Fisher's parts in, uh, I think two Star Wars ago, there were parts of, of Carrie Fisher that were, digitally mm-hmm. generated i mean with her permission and stuff I, they didn't uh it wasn't a dystopian uh situation i don't think but i think she was you know not able to to do the performance and they used um some computers to uh to fake her in in at least a couple of shots so um that is something that we're uh, able to do to some extent now um with with limitations but you can i, I know um 
Zemeckis for years has been trying to digitize actors because he hates them and he doesn't want to work with them, right? He has this whole, <laughs> his idea of a, a movie cast is just Tom Hanks in a beach ball. But um, he, he wants to, uh, you know, just have all the actors scanned completely into the computer so he can input a script and start moving cameras around. And, you know, uh, I, I, it does seem like that's the extremely long trajectory of um of movie making if that continues to be you know something society wants to do um, yeah don't sign a bad contract basically i think is uh because I, I think that you know if you have likeness rights which in this space which i think you certainly will and it seems like that's the precedent zemeckis would have to have the rights to do that and i think uh you know just be careful signing over your your persona in perpetuity <laughs> yeah well, just make sure that you have some kind of residuals coming in if they yeah. use you um so um let, let's talk about some higher higher stakes stuff for a moment right this may be a situation where you know a a murder may have or have not been committed and there's some sort of uh possibly faked evidence involved right a, another situation that is brought up is the idea of misleading a diplomat um, with say like a fake audio or video call, which could of course, you know, possibly lead to war in the worst case scenario. Um, then there's, you know, things like fraud and ID theft, you know, which could be very, very bad, uh, life ruining for individuals. Right. So you have these much higher stake situations, um, higher stakes. I mean, in the sense of not that the, the fake news stuff isn't also high stakes because propaganda and manipulation is a big deal for sure, sure. but higher stakes in the sense of there's a lot more incentive for parties involved to invest in the forensics if they're available. Right. Um, if you get a call that could start a war, uh, or if the, you see a video that says that you're guilty of murder, um, or if your ID is stolen, uh, there is a lot of reason to use the best possible forensic technology to try to solve that problem, right? Um, and, and discover the actual truth of what's going on. But I think if we, if we now take the, the darker thought experiment and imagine that forensics is not keeping up, right? Right, which is entirely possible. Yeah, then I think that is where we have a weirder world um, with quite a bit of uncertainty. And it's interesting, I think, to talk then about what strategies you could use that aren't of the sort that we mentioned earlier, like forensic looking at, you know, the pattern of pixels and and determining, oh, that this is clearly like a signature of this well-known algorithm. So we know that this is a fake uh, photograph, right? I think there are other ways uh, maybe to sort of verify recordings at the time they're occurring, you know, that could be solutions, right? To sort of uh, create, you know, more robust standards of truth, right? In, in the recordings that we create. Yeah. Well, the easiest um, thing to lean on, in my opinion, is just uh, multiple sources, right? Because uh, mm -hmm. the way that these fakeries work is that they're being done in a stream that you have access to. So unless a hacker has managed to hack every security camera that could possibly have picked up the murder, say, to use that example, um, mm -hmm. then showing one camera where uh, the murderer uh, is not in the frame and the victim kills themselves, <laughs> uh, and then, you know, five other videos from further away that show uh, a two blurry figures uh, getting into an altercation, um, you you would assume that the that the one with the seppuku has been faked, 
you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. And so if the future is one that we've posited before, where there's just large quantities of ambient surveillance happening all the time everywhere, right. at least in public spaces, I think it does solve the problem in the way that you're describing, at least, at least insofar as it's a public arena right now. Right. And the more owners or controllers of those surveillance streams that there are, yeah. the more robust the system is, because if it's got a single point of failure, you could hack all the streams. Mm-hmm. But if let's say each building has its own security camera and mm-hmm. that's controlled only by that building's security system, Uh, The chance that we hacked every separate building is much lower than, you know, uh, the chance that we hacked one. Yeah. Becomes like a majority uh, vote among the recording devices, essentially. Right. Like what is what is the majority of of devices say? um, And if this isn't, uh, you know, a totally lockdown police state situation, I think we can assume that um, they weren't all faked. Right. Right. Now, I, I, I think that is a really promising direction again, but that only sort of works in, I think, a public sphere where there's likely to be a lot of recording devices in a private sphere where one person controls um, the space, you know, there may only be one source, if any, right. um, I guess there has to be at least one for it to be faked. Uh, so, uh, another thing that I thought about is just, um, starting to build authentication methods directly into cameras and microphones. Right. Um, and I think there's a sort of a, a distributed way to do this or like a decentralized way to do this and a centralized way to do this. Right. Um, the centralized way is, you know, every time I take a picture with my phone, um, that is run through some sort of third party authentication. Right. Um, me, like, in other words, I'm using a platform to take my pictures, take my video, take my recorded audio um, that is a trusted third party that part of their reputation and part of what they do is they ensure that everything that is taken or recorded with their platform happened at a specific time and has not been tampered with, right? So if you had a big enough company or a third party that people could invest enough trust in, uh, then if you ran your recordings through that, so like, you know, it goes to a server or something, uh, then you might be able to create uh, trusted recordings that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So Facebook or somebody could do this. It, it could also, uh, even if it allows fakery, it could just mark the fakery and still work um, just as well. But yeah, if there's some trusted party that um, puts a marker down that says, you know, this is guaranteed authentic by the uh, the Facebook uh, authentication system. You know, we have uh, you're running a phone that's a trusted system. It's uh, reporting to us whether it's um, giving you the image right off the camera or not, and we can you know we can stamp that. I can imagine ways you might defeat that, but it seems like as an arms race sort of philosophy that could definitely work. And this seems really to be very, very likely to me, you know, because I think, you know, conspiracy theories aside, I think if you generally, if you have a big enough institution, um, while they might tamper with certain things in certain special cases, um, I think for just like casual everyday use, um, if their reputation is staked on it, uh, I think a lot of people would probably be able to trust this stuff. And what this would lead to is essentially anything that wasn't any like, recording that wasn't taken or passed through this trusted system, you would essentially disregard almost like out of hand. Right. 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 You would just assume that it 
could be fake and therefore yeah. you wouldn't trust it uh, the same way. Yeah. And you wouldn't even necessarily need uh, a third party to implement this, right? You could implement this um, using another technology the, uh, for distributed trust. Um, you could use like a blockchain technology. Yes, that's the decentralized version. Um, and uh, obviously, I think many you know people would be fans of this uh, if if they're concerned about you know some sort of centralized tampering occurring, uh, or if they just don't want to give that much um, power to Facebook or Google or somebody. I mean, I th- already we use those those powerful systems to verify identity on um, mm-hmm. in terms of like logins and such like that. So uh, you know things that are easier to fake and therefore people are more skeptical of. Um, but it seems that, you know, not everybody wants to give yeah. Facebook that control. And I, I can understand why. So uh, I imagine the most likely world is a world where both uh, large ne- large companies and uh, some kind of distributed network are engaged in um, providing trust in this, you know, in this arena. Um, yeah. And, and you might have multiple parties that do that. So, for example, right. going back to the really high stake situation, the sort of like diplomat conversation where you want to ensure that things are correct, um, you probably want to rely on several forms of authentication. Right. Because, you know, one single, you know, authenticator could be potentially faked and there might be like reason enough to try to like even, you know, manipulate one authenticator in such like a big situation as that. Right. Um, but if you had the ability to say run a recording through multiple third parties, you know, with different interests and, you know, like different power bases, then you might be able to get a relatively high certainty about, about things that are truly important. Um, at least like, I mean, as good as anything ever is today anyways, right? Right, um, right. And I don't think, yeah, the, the important thing to re- recognize is that you don't need perfect trust. You just need enough trust that any madman with a, a, a webcam can't just start a nuclear war. <laughs> you know? Exactly. I mean, yeah. it's a, it, these are high stakes situations, but in a way it's a little bit of a low bar to cross because a lot of the uh, day-to-day, you know, work of a diplomat, you know, it could be faked and it could fool them and it could take them three days to figure it out and nothing bad will happen. <laughs> there's only yeah. a, there's only a small subset of diplomatic questions on which that kind of failure is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's only those that would need the kind of, and I, and I think already, I, I'm not an expert on this, but I, I think that uh, diplomatic circles have their own internal authentication schemes in place. Uh, and they, I think they also use various third party schemes. Uh, so I think there'd probably be some combination of homegrown and third party approaches to try to weed out fakeries uh, as they come in. Yeah. Perhaps like, uh, you know, the simplest solution in a way here um, is, of course, just to do maybe more business in person. Right. Um, and, and I think you could make an argument that in this world, there is some in, increased emphasis on that in some situations. Um, yeah, I'm I think not, that's already the case. Right. Because yeah. I think um, just uh, eavesdropping is already such a big issue, particularly in diplomacy, mm-hmm. that uh, electronic communication is somewhat devalued. I mean, of course, we know that uh, diplomats use a lot of email, um, but maybe in the last couple of years, they've learned that that wasn't such a great idea um, (laughs) due to the, you know, multitude of email-related scandals and hacks and leaks that have happened across the world and and certainly in the United States uh, recently. So, 
yeah, I could, I think that uh, there is a, a great value if you are concerned with both secrecy and authenticity, as diplomats are, uh, in doing things in person. But it's also not always practical. So you have to have some strategy for what are you going to do when, you know, your counterparts in Russia and you guys yeah. need to talk now um, or something like that. So. Yeah. So, so just to kind of sum up, I think, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like in many ways, this isn't a hugely like it seems like a really big deal when you first start talking about this. But it seems to me now after talking through it, I would be willing to bet that in a lot of cases, this isn't that different from the world we're already in. Um, again, in, in the truly high stakes situations, I think there will be uh, technological solutions, whether that's uh, forensics or third party authentication or decentralized authentication. Um, I think there'll be options available. Um, and the sort of like more like just general uh, casual fakery that happens. Um, I, again, I think we already live in a world where people uh, believe stuff that's untrue all the time due to their own, you know, either biases or, you know, reluctance or inability to just spend the time uh, researching what they're looking at. And so, like, I think that's tr- obviously a tremendous problem we have today, but I don't see that necessarily getting that much worse. It just seems like that just continues. Um, I think perhaps like the one thing that I would be scared of that does seem maybe genuinely different in this future is again, going back to the real time nature of it is the sort of like on the fly, I get a phone call that sounds like somebody I know. I don't, it, because it's happening in real time. Like I don't have, you know, maybe an easy way to, to verify it. Right. right? It's Nigerian prince scams are the thing. That I'm most yeah. worried about in this world because already people fall for those when objectively they shouldn't, right? And yeah. uh, they're just going to get more convincing with this. This is going to allow people to um, do a much more convincing scam over the phone, yeah. over Skype, over whatever you know medium, social media, whatever that people are using. And, uh, you know, that is... Uh, already a fight in our world so this isn't like a huge sea change but i do think that will be harder to combat uh once this stuff becomes uh fully available i also think there'll be a benefit to it of you know a lot more and better political uh comedy uh because uh, (laughs) if you guys haven't yet clicked i mean you got to watch the uh the george w bush face on the uh the face-to-face demo it is i mean the guy is just text trying out the tech he's just sort of making funny faces and then you see george w bush making those same faces and even that little amount of of concept is very amusing um so uh i imagine that uh comedians and the like will have a field day with this stuff yeah i mean and we it, it's sort of maybe an oversight that we haven't talked enough about just how fun actually this can be that's a big a big part of this future that we can one aspect that we can at least look forward to i think so I think we've covered the basic elements of what this technology will do. You know, it'll, uh, it'll, it'll call into question, I think, uh, a lot of things that we currently use as evidence, but ultimately I think it will lead us to a more skeptical and more entertaining future. Until next time. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. 
Thanks for listening.